Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Monday evening? I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. Got a great guest today. We have Jason Belzer. Jason is an attorney, an agent, and a former Division I athlete who has been on the forefront of kind of all this NIL stuff. Uh, he actually had a buddy that was in the uh, one of the original lawsuits uh, regarding the A Sports video game that kind of pushed this NIL thing forward. I wanted to, I follow Jason from afar. Really sharp guy. He's the founder of Eight Athletic Directors University and then Student Athlete NIL. So they've got several collectives, collectives across different campus. And a guy that's really just been, uh, like I said, on the forefront of this NIL thing. I wanted to talk to him a little bit about you know, what it's like 18 months in and where he thinks all this is heading. And he had some pretty fascinating, uh, honestly, I thought pretty crazy stuff to say. Crazy in like a, uh, like, wow way. Not like, oh man, this guy's crazy. But anyway, smart guy. I uh, really enjoyed the conversation. I uh, really appreciate Jason's time and I think you will too. So uh, we'll get to Jason in just a second. But before we get to that, I wanted to remind you, the podcast is brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. That the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Look, the proof is in the pudding. It's bowl season. You've got college basketball hitting full swing. Uh, Skybox's bowl packages on the sky. Last weekend, Thursday through Sunday, Skybox went thirty-nine and sixteen in college basketball for fifty-seven and a half units up 57 and a half went undefeated in their NCAA football plays and three and two in the NFL. Guess who didn't do that? You who did not use Skybox sports picks. It's time to stop paying the bookie. You need to start asking him to pay you asking him where your supplementary income is coming from. Go online, skyboxsportspicks.com. Sign up for a picks package. You can try it sports centric, all sports. You can try it for a day, a week, a month. I'd recommend going out ahead and signing up for the year-long all-access pass. That way you can profit 57 units in a weekend and basically just retire, and then boom, you're all set. All you have to do is go online, select the picks package, use the promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E. That'll get you 20% off any purchase. They'll send you an email with the picks in a color-coded spreadsheet by unit, very well categorized, very professional, and you're better equipped to profit in the long run than you were before trying skybox check them out skyboxsportspicks.com and use that promo code rippy r-i-p-p-e-e because that'll let them know we sent you podcast is also brought to you by lb's university avenue there in oxford go see greg if you're a rippy right subscriber that's rippy rights.substack.com you get the new rippy right special it is three six ounce bacon wrap fillets for 20 bucks that's about a 40 dollar valuation that you're getting a half off Three steaks to kick off your grilling weekend. Just show Greg proof of subscription and boom, he'll get you set up. Then go find all of your own favorites. Scott uh, Oxford is so lucky to have a place like LB's. It's the best butcher shop in the world. All kinds of delicious uh, sausages, seafood. I love the tri-tips, all kinds of great cuts there. Greg wants to make your grilling experience great. It's just a crown jewel in Oxford. You need to check them out. It's a bucket list destination. Check them out, LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, here is Jason Belzer on NIL, how it started, what's happened since, and where all this is going. All right, we now welcome on an uh, awesome guest, Jason Belzer. He's a uh, founder of Athletic Directors University Student Athlete NIL, um, very well-versed in the NIL space. And as we're kind of a year and a half into this thing, I wanted to have someone on to 
kind of make sense of how this all came to be and what it's turned into since. I really appreciate you joining us today. How you doing? Thank you, Brian. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. So this is such a wide ranging topic. Um, I, I don't even really know where to start, but I guess we'll kind of get going with just like how NIL came to be, because I think to like the average college sports fan, college football fan, there was this ruling. And then all of a sudden at midnight, Bo Nix was signing with a sweet tea company and it just felt like the floodgates were open. But obviously a lot of things happened that led up to that moment last summer. I think it was one day in July. I can't remember the exact date. I know you had the O'Bannon antitrust lawsuit. Kind of take me through the background of how all this gained momentum and then how NIL actually became a thing. Yeah, so uh, July 1st, 2021 was the date. Um, and that date was came about because that was when legislation became active, um, primarily in the state of Florida, uh, to allow for NIL student-athletes or student-athletes to be able to earn NIL money. Uh, so the Alston case that you were referring to, the O'Bannon trial, uh, didn't directly lead to NIL. What it did was uh, Alston case essentially um, took away the NCAA's ability to have an antitrust exemption. So they couldn't come in and tell their schools, we're not going to go allow NIL because essentially that would be collusion. Uh, and if you collude, then you're committing an antitrust exempt, uh, violation. Um, and so essentially there was a number of NIL laws that were coming on the books. Uh, Chip LaMarca, who was a state senator at in Florida, still is, had passed legislation through the state Senate in Florida to adopt legislation to go active July 1st. There were a couple of other states that were in the same boat. And essentially what happened was that the NCAA could have kept its rule about no NIL, but it would have meant that Florida and I think Kentucky at the time and Tennessee, um, they would have been at an unfair advantage. So they basically had to create a, an opening for every state uh, to be able to allow to offer their student athletes to earn NIL dollars. Uh, so that's really where we ended up. I mean, the reality is that NIL, name, image, and likeness, is something that every human being on the planet has, right? So, Brian, you have a podcast on Rivals. You can earn money from that podcast. If you're a student athlete, you couldn't do that, right? You, as a student athlete, were not allowed to earn money really doing anything because the NCAA was arguing that anything that you did to earn money – essentially was because you were an athlete. Uh, so I don't think that there's a human being on the planet, or at least in the United States, if you're a capitalist, uh, would have agreed with that, right? Like there's no reason why a student athlete who was a painter or a, a trumpet player or anything else shouldn't be allowed to make a few dollars. Um, and so that's essentially what NIL is, right? That student athletes are allowed to earn dollars doing advertising, doing personal training sessions, whatever that may be. What has happened, though, is that, and, you know, this is sort of was inevitable, is that NIL has essentially become a workaround for revenue sharing for student athletes. Student athletes are generating a lot of money. The football players at Ole Miss make the school uh, probably an average of about $5 million, $6 million for the time that they're at the university. But their compensation is a few hundred thousand dollars at best in terms of room and board. Um, I don't think that's fair, right? Like if if you're a 
if, if you as an employee working at a store are making your employer um, 50x what they're paying you, doesn't sound like a very good deal to me, right? Even right. if you're making minimum wage of $15 an hour, you're probably not making your employee or employer, you know, $1,000 in that hour, right? And if you were, you would be like, I'm, I'm out of here, right? Like, clearly, there's yeah. somebody that's going to value my ability more than what this employer is willing to compensate me. So essentially, NIL has sort of become a, a workaround, some of it, right? Some, a lot of it is legitimate. It, there's hundreds of millions of dollars of legitimate marketing and endorsement activity. But on the other end, some of it is now collectives and other avenues using it as an opportunity to compensate student athletes beyond what may be considered fair market value for the services that they're providing. Right. And that's it's the crazy part about it because it's hypocritical on so many levels. You mentioned the fact that they couldn't earn money like if they were a painter. If I'm not mistaken, the NCAA wouldn't let them have a job, period. Like if a football player wanted to go work at Abner's, that was no bueno. Like I don't think they could right. do that, right? Which well, is they couldn't do it, number one, because they didn't have the time. Right. But even then, they would make an argument that uh, why are they getting this job? Is it because they're getting it because they're a football player or is it because they actually earn it, right, or deserve to have that job? Yeah. And there were several like almost cruel cases through the years. I remember, I think it was like a UCF football player that had a gigantic YouTube following. And I think he either got ruled ineligible or they shut the thing down. He was, he was the kicker. Yeah, yeah. He was the kicker that couldn't make the money. Yeah. Same. And That's like, it. It, that would like generate, you know, the short term outrage and everybody forgets about it until the NCAA trips over itself on the next thing that they handle. So you mentioned the, the O'Bannon is the lead plaintiff in that case. And that was a fairly short trial, right? Like it lasts basically a month for a ruling if the way I read it was correctly. And no, so it was actually a very long, it was actually a very, very, very long trial. In okay. fact, it was many, many years. Um, so the trial actually, the O'Bannon trial, so we can, if you want to do a short history, yeah. the actual pre-trial was I played football at Rutgers and my quarterback was Ryan Hart. Uh, so this was back in about 15, no, more than that. I mean, it was 16, 17 years ago when Ryan graduated. Ryan filed a lawsuit after he graduated against EA Sports called Hart versus EA. Right. Uh, arguing that, that our team, he was in the football game and it was him. It looked like him. His stats were there, but he wasn't getting paid. Around the same time, Ed O'Bannon filed a similar lawsuit. They eventually got combined. And O'Bannon, um, that lawsuit uh, was against the NCAA and EA Sports. EA Sports, they lost. And EA Sports said, we're going to pay out. We're going to settle the, we, we lost. We got to pay a settlement. And we're done making our video game, right? And the right. video game went away. And I believe the year was 2014, right? Like that's the last year you can get EA Sports college football. It was. I still um, have it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So that was the year. 2014 was the year. Um, so the problem was the NCAA appealed and they appealed to the Supreme Court. And eventually it took almost seven years for the case to work its way up to the Supreme Court. Eventually it was renamed Alston because it combined a whole bunch of other cases. And so the EA Sports original case was Alston essentially being appealed to the Supreme Court. Had the NCAA not appealed and just said, we will allow NIL in 2014, 
we would not be where we are right now with NIL because the problem is they lost the antitrust exemption. They could have created some sort of, hey, you can allow student athletes to earn up to $10,000 a year in NIL as an example. But they didn't. And then maybe that would have led to another lawsuit. But they overplayed their hand. They lost 9 nothing in the Supreme Court and basically screwed themselves. And now they have zero capability to enforce anything. That is a fascinating aspect of it that I actually did not know. There's so much stuff out there to read about it. It can kind of become overwhelming to try to actually make sense of the whole thing, unless you've been following it, I guess, in real time through the years. And that's actually, you answered my next question, was like that happens in 14, but they I, I didn't know they appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, but that makes sense now. So you get the ruling seven years later. So from that time the ruling happens to July 1, what is the NSA doing? Are they just throwing their hands up? Because it's kind of ironic to see them go to Congress now and basically like beg for some sort of help in regulating this. They were doing nothing. I mean, they have no power. They were hoping that they won that case right? so that they can say, hey, we can do whatever we want and, and prevent these schools from engaging in this. Uh, and that was sort of their party line. Like they were saying, we're not going to allow this. We're not going to allow this. Oh, crap. We can't not allow it because right. the Supreme Court just, you know, ruled um, in the plaintiff's favor. So, you know, the point is, it's the, the cat has been out of the bag. And just yesterday, uh, you know, we're recording this podcast on Friday. Just yesterday, there was a, re a ruling out of California related to the NLRB uh, about, you know, whether or not student athletes are employees. So that might be the next axe to fall. Now, now it's not going to happen overnight. It still right. might take some time. And even if it does, that's a private school. There's a whole bunch of things that go into that. And essentially, even if that happens, student athletes could potentially be allowed to unionize. But it's really important to make sure that people understand that it's not so simple to make a student athlete an employee. Because once you become an employee, you're going to get paid. You're going to have to pay taxes on your compensation. You may not, you know, you're not going to just going to get a scholarship anymore. If you're an employee and you're not a good employee, guess what happens? You get fired. You get fired, right? So, you know, how is that all going to work? So there's still a long way to go there, but there will be a day soon. Is that a year? Is it five years? When student athletes are going to get some sort of revenue share. It's going to work itself out. And NIL is sort of this stopgap. NIL will never go away because even if student athletes are employees, um, NIL will still be a thing, right? Like, hey, right. maybe at Ole Miss you get a hundred thousand dollar minimum salary, but you're still gonna want to get some money on the side. Just like, you know, why does it that every pro athlete wants to play in a big market because endorsement they want to go to New York or LA because the bigger brands are there and they're gonna do big deals with them? It's no different. That's NIL. That is literally NIL. So eventually it's all gonna be there, but now NIL rules and you know. Right now, the transfer portal is open in football. There's about a 200 to $250 million market for college football players that's working its way around, sorting itself out. Um, we know this because our company runs collectives at over 20 different schools. So we control a bigger piece of that market than anybody, right? And so we see what's out there, what's happening, what kids are signing for. Um, and so gives us at least a better understanding of what the market value is for student athletes compared to anybody else. The fact that this happened and it became the wild west so quickly, 
is it just a reflection of like the lack of leadership or any sort of self-awareness at the NCAA? Because you mentioned they didn't think they were going to lose that court case and then they lose nine to nothing. That seems like a pretty convincing defeat. Um, if you ask me, like, was there anything they could have done? I know you mentioned like not losing the antitrust aspect of it in 2014 if they hadn't appealed, but just in that time since, is there anything they realistically, without just being unfairly critical, they could have done to brace They could have allowed through? NIL with restrictions. They right. could have said, we're going to allow student athletes to make money off of, you know, fair market value, fair market value on autographs, training lessons. Like if they threw the kids a bone, Hey, you can go do the video game, like, but everything's fair market value. We'll be in a lot better place right now. Right. Yeah. Like that, the, you know, like, cause what's fair market value. Most kids, most student athletes legitimately aren't worth more than a few thousand dollars. Right. And so had they have just acquiesced, it would have the wild West nature of what's happening is not the NCAA's fault though. The wild West nature is just capitalism. Yeah. Essentially yeah. you had this vacuum capitalistic vacuum open up and it got filled right like all of a sudden the nil was the last marketing frontier left right where you have all these individuals who can make all this money who couldn't make money now can make money here's the opportunity to to do that and it's a billion dollar industry right now and so the, July 1st, 2021, it happens. I mentioned the Bo Nick sweet tea thing that he literally announces at midnight. You see this initial wave of players kind of make these, like whether it's local or national businesses, like Barstool Sports gets involved with some athletes and they have, you know, partnerships with the local restaurant and stuff like that. I felt like we saw an initial wave of storylines about that stuff happening. And now a year and a half year later, I don't feel like you see that anymore. Now all of the talk is about, well, this school's collective has X amount of money. I mean, the whole pissing match between Ole Miss and Auburn as Kiffin kind of dangled in between the two schools for two weeks. That got a little weird there. There was all these reports about how much collective money Ole Miss actually has versus Auburn and vice versa. So now you're not actually hearing anything about what, like, the, I guess the true nature of name, image, and likeness is, right? It's how well, much you money do. You, you see a lot of big deals, but yeah, yeah, the big money is the collectives, right? The big money is because that's where kids are getting paid. You have student athletes that are making six figures, not because they can get six figures in endorsements, but because they have a roster value as an offensive lineman of six figures to Ole Miss. Right. And that's why you hear it, right? Num you're going to hear the big numbers, right? You're not, you don't hear about LeBron James did a deal with this little company. You hear about LeBron James to sign the hundred million dollar contract with the Lakers. Right. Right. That's what's, you know, that that's the nature of it. So would that part have been allowed had the NCAA kind of been able like kind of not appealed it, not taken seven years and capped it? Like with this whole just, basically kind of over the table pay for play thing from collectives would that have been if the NCAA, we wouldn't have collectives right now it doesn't mean we okay. wouldn't have had eventually but if the ncaa just said okay we fold and they didn't appeal austin we probably would still be in a in-between place what brought out collectives and what was the first one that you heard of because again it very quickly more from sweet tea deals and stuff like that to actually kind of a centralized you know, group of people running a collective at X school. Hell, Ole Miss even just kind of sort of, like I know it's kind of a gray area in terms of like the affiliation with the school, but Ole Miss kind of merged all the collectives in one and the athletic department sort of kind of behind closed doors, like 
oversaw that to a degree. And now there's been a little bit more leeway in how involved schools can be with collectives, right? That line has gotten closer. Yeah. So schools can now sort of have a arm's length relationship with collectives. Collectives came about early in September. Um, We actually launched a collective alongside the University of Florida was ground zero. So Gator Collective and then our company came in and launched the collective there. Um, And it sort of snowballed from there. And it's still like in the process, right? Collectives are not not made equal, right? There are different collectives. Grove Collective is in a very different position than even some of the other collectives in the SEC in terms of how they're operated and how everything is working. So uh, it's still a very immature industry from that perspective. And the reality is that many collectives that exist today are not going to exist a few years from now because they're not being built in a sustainable way, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so what you, you mean can't by just that? rely on million because it, you know if I come to you, Brian, and say, "Hey, give me a million dollars, and I'm a big donor at Ole Miss." What happens if? Well, let me back up. I'll just use Texas A&M as an example. We yeah. all know Texas A&M paid a lot of money for their football class. You think all those donors are coming back next year and putting the same money in? No. Right. So what's going to happen? Right. Like, how do you, if you pay a kid now, how are you going to pay the kid next year if you can't afford to do it? Right. It's not like the NFL where the team gets a guaranteed distribution every year. That's not how it's working, right? So most of these collect, not most of them, but a lot of them are going to fall apart once they can't keep up with their promises or keep up with their fundraising. Yeah, you're. that's a very smart way to put it. You explained that better than I could have even possibly like thought about it. You're right, because that was actually something uh, my par- podcast co-host and I talked about last week is like, all right, cool. Ole Miss got to this 10 million NIL mark. It was free pub for the school. Everyone's happy. But what does that look like next year? Just because you have 10 million bucks this year does not mean you have 10 million bucks. I would be extremely surprised if Ole Miss has $10 million in the bank. They may have $10 million right. in commitments, yeah. but it's highly unlikely that they have it in the bank. And I would hope, uh, again, I don't, I don't, you know, we don't work with Ole Miss, but, you know, we work with Oklahoma. You know, we are raising money, but we're not spending all of it right now. And we know, like, if I got to deploy a million today, I better make sure I have a million in the bank for next year, too. Otherwise, my team's going to leave. Take me through the protections or kind of the, I guess, legal viability, I don't even know the right way to put this, of like these NIL deals. So Quinshawn Judkins, outstanding freshman for Ole Miss this year. He got a pretty big boost in his NIL allotment. No one knows exactly what it is, but it is. What is that distribution like? Like, are they, like you mentioned the this year, next year thing. If the money dries up, is there any way he can, let's just say Ole Miss dries up completely. Just crazy hypothetical. Who's on the hook for paying Quinshawn? The good news is is that the NCAA has a rule that you can't really have a contract for more than a year. So it actually sort of helps collectives because they're only on the hook for a year. Now, it doesn't mean that you're contractually on the hook for a year, but clearly you're on the hook for more because if a kid makes it now and he has a good year, he's going to want that or he's out, right? He's leaving. We 100% will see lawsuits in NIL soon with collectives not paying what they're supposed to pay and so that's an issue. I mean, I can tell you, we have become very close to suing student athletes because they are not doing sometimes what they're supposed to do to get paid, right? Like if I sign a contract with you to do an endorsement with a brand and then you don't show up and now I'm out because I have a contract with a brand and they're like, where's my talent? Of course yeah. I'm going to sue you. 
right? So it's happening, it's brewing, and it's going to come out, and it's going to work both ways because there's some collectives that may have say, hey, I have X. I can tell you for a fact that it almost happened in the SEC. There was a collective that oversigned a bunch of talent, student athletes, to money that they didn't have. And essentially, the school had to have a bunch of donors come in and save the collective because otherwise they would have had like a mutiny in their athletics department because you would have had like, like 50 kids being like, where's my money? Could you imagine like, and who are they going to sue? They're going to sue the collective. They're going to sue the school. They're going to sue the coach who promised them the money. That's going to happen. It's going to happen soon. It's crazy to think about. So what about the reverse of it? So I was, uh, I lived in Dallas until last year. I helped out freelancing some high school football. I went to the game at South Lake Carroll. South Lake Carroll lost their quarterback that year because Quinn Ewers skipped his senior year of high school, went to Ohio State, supposedly signed a seven-figure seven figure NIL deal. Well, whatever the actual number was, he stays there for a year and transfers to Texas. I don't know how much you know about the situation, but your best guess, did he get all of that money and then go to Texas? Like, how does that actually work on the other end of things, if that makes sense? Well, it, it's, it, it depends. Like, when we sign student-athletes to contracts, we uh, – Definitely do not give them a ton of money up front. We always try to backload our contracts. We structure them around the transfer portal so that if a kid shows up and then doesn't do what he needs to do, like if they're there the whole year, they're going to get paid their money, but we're not going to give them, you know, a ton of money right now. And then, um, you know, like we have collectives where we're trying to retain student athletes from them not going into the transfer portal. We do not give a ton of money up front because what happens if I give a kid a thousand dollars right now, He's like, all right, I got it. And then, you know, Ole Miss just offered me 10000 I'm out. Like, I can't do anything, right? Because I can't make – you cannot make an NIL contract predicated on that student athlete being an athlete at a university. Cannot, right? Like, no NIL contract can say you can only have this deal as long as you're a football player at Ole Miss. So that's 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 the crazy part about it. That's not allowed, but it's like – it's kind of like the – it's like – it's like in reverse of what the whole point of it's supposed to be, right? Which kind of makes it harder for you guys, I guess. Well, to the point of the contract is no, but, but the point of NIL is that it should actually be based on endorsement and marketing opportunity, not right. because they're a student athlete. The point of the collective is to try to get them to stay at the school. But remember, the collectives are not in cahoots with the NCAA. And that's a direct, like, if that gets reported to the school, then that's a violation. And then the school needs to report that to the NCAA and say, you can't do that or they need to rule the student athlete ineligible. You mentioned there being differing like structure uh, diversity and how a lot of these collectives are structured. Um, who's regulating this? Is this just a completely unregulated operation collectives? Like who is kind of making sure things are by the book and all that? Who does that fall? No, it's a hundred, it's a hundred percent unregulated. The only regulation, you know, tangential regulation is the collectives that are operating as 501c3s are technically regular. They are regulated by the IRS. Right. Taxes. The reality is a lot of them are doing things to basically break. A lot of these collectives are essentially fronts for laundering money to student athletes. Um, and so there will be people that will, I will tell you, are going to go to jail because of how, how they've set up some of these things, um, which is unfortunate. But that's the reality of it. And it's because there is no regulation. Just a bunch of people figuring out how I can go pay a recruit to come to my alma mater and not do it the right way. So give me an example of just what a collective that's doing it by the books that won't have someone end up in jail in a couple of years. What does that look like? What should <laughs> they be doing? 
so as an example, if you're a 501c3 collective, the point of a 501c3 is you're a public charity, right? So your goal is not to pay athletes. Your goal is to do public good. So as an example, you're sort of capped at your compensation of probably um, it's around twenty-five to fifty thousand dollars a year for a nonprofit. Everything has to be done fair market value. So if if I'm a five hundred one c three and I'm paying a student athlete at Ole Miss to do something for Ronald McDonald House or Habitat for Humanity, I can't go pay the kid a thousand dollars to show up to do autographs and for an hour, right? Because the IRS is going to say you pay this kid a thousand dollars to do autographs or to, you know, volunteer with some kids. Well, I could have played Brian 20 bucks for the hour and he would have done the same thing. And you probably would have had the same result. So everything from a 501c3 standpoint has to be done in fair market value. If it's not a 501c3 and it's a commercial entity, I can pay whatever I want as long as the money is getting reported to the, to the IRS. Right. So if I can pay you, Brian, $100,000 to go mow my lawn as part of the collective. And as long as you report that money to the IRS for tax purposes, there's nothing illegal about it. So why would you operate as a 501c3 then? Like, what's the advantage when you have that other? The option? only advantage that exists is that donors may not be willing to give you money without getting a tax write off. Ah, OK. That That's makes the sense. the only reason. Yeah. So let's there's talk a about million reasons why you shouldn't. Right. But that's the only reason. But most people are not clued in enough to figure that out. And that's why there are brazen. I mean, again, you literally like you can do research. If you know what you're looking for, you can go online and see things that people are tweeting about. You know, there's one collective. It's a 501c3. They've announced on social media. We just signed an ex-athlete to a major deal. Imagine if like... um you know, the American Cancer Society or the Make-A-Wish Foundation just said, we just signed Tom Brady to a major NIL deal. We just paid him a million dollars of your donations. People would be like, there would be a riot, right? Yeah, like, like, people would be like, doing? are you kidding me? But that's literally the equivalent of what is happening. It's crazy. It's a very poignant example, as funny as it is. Let's talk about fair market value, because last year in particular, that kind of the recruiting cycle after it gets legalized in the summer – is when you start seeing these kids out of high school, particularly quarterbacks, get rumored for you know high six-figure, seven-figure NIL deals. And I think most reasonable people, while I love seeing kids get paid and earn money in college and all of that, it's all great. But you know, I think most reasonable people are like, how is that kid who's never played a down of college football on national television worth a million dollars? How do you turn like how do you determine fair market value? And where do you see these gigantic deals going? Because that to me doesn't seem sustainable. Unless it's just the nature of the beast to get the top level talent at these big conferences and big schools. How do you see that playing out? Well, I mean, it's sustainable as long as there's somebody in the market that's willing to pay that money. And that means that there has to be somebody in the market that can raise that money. So what's happening now is not sustainable and the market will eventually find an equilibrium. Right. Um, but. It's it is it is it's crazy. Right. At the end of the day, it's crazy. Fair market value is whatever you want it to be. Right. And fair market value usually is based on research. And I, I just here's the perfect example. We'll go back to the lawn mowing example. What is fair market value for somebody to mow your lawn, Brian? If you go and call the local lawn care service and you say, how much does it cost to mow my lawn? And they say, 
uh, it's a thousand dollars, you're going to be like, that sounds kind of odd. But then if you call another place and they're like, it's also, it's $2,000. Another place says it's $3,000. Then eventually it might be that it costs that much money to mow your lawn. Right now we know that's not the case, but we know that's not the case because eventually you're going to do your research and you're going to find the real price. Right. The problem is right now in the market, you can't really do research. Right. How do you know what one collective is paying another collective and another collective? You don't. So if a kid tells you, hey, Auburn just offered me 200000 and you're Ole Miss, you got to take the kid for his word, right? Or not, right? That's right. your market research. <laughs> along those lines, we had this debate all through the Ole Miss, Kiffin, Auburn saga about, like, what's, the, what's preventing schools and collectives to lie about how much money they have in the bank? They are lying all the time, every day. I mean, you'd be an idiot day. not to, right? Almost, if you're trying to get places. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that you can. But, you know, look, listen, there was an article literally came out last night about one of the higher profile transfers who left the university, committed to a school. They signed with us. They signed with one of our collectives. And it said that this transfer asked his original school for X amount of dollars. And he was not going, he was not staying unless they could commit X. It was a bullshit number, like totally bullshit. Like it was like $400,000. He did not get anywhere near $400,000 for signing with us. But he told the reporter there was hearsay and whatever, and it gets reported, right? You know, there was the the, the report around, you know, the Tennessee quarterback getting $8 million or something like that. Yeah, that something nuts. There's no way, zero chance, zero. Now, maybe it's a million, maybe it's $2 million. Nobody's paying $8 million for a high school quarterback. Nobody. Right. It doesn't make any that Exactly. It doesn't make any sense. So from you being a former athlete and like you kind of knowing to at least to some degree, like the inner workings of all this, when a coach goes to another school, like does he get to see the books? Because I imagine a guy's not taking another gig unless he actually knows how much money he's working with. Like what would be your best guess as to how that actually plays out before a guy takes a job? Well, because he can't we now see know the books unless the school has a relationship with the collective to show them the books. The market is not mature enough to okay. allow that yet. It's just not. But it will, and it and it's happening slowly, right? And next year, for sure, you better believe that coaches aren't going to go somewhere unless they know how much money is in the till for NIL. Right. Because I keep hearing from people in the coaching industry that's like, that's kind of number one now. Like, no facilities, none of that other stuff. It is NIL. What do you have? And I always just have wondered, like, how do you actually prove that? Because it's so kind of opaque in the sense that, like, there's no transparency in the process. I feel like it just leaves a lot of people confused. Here, one quick NCA thing. Everyone talks about them being rendered toothless. Do they have one more swing in the bat? Do you think they have the capability to pop another program for quote unquote breaking NIL rules? I don't even know how you would define that at this point. No, Do you not think they chance. have one more swing. Nope. Nope. I don't think they have any power. Let me let me say this. And I we we are the leaders in this space. We control more money in the market than anybody else. I've been in this business for 20 years. I know a lot of people at the NCAA in the last year and a half that nil has existed not one person has called me and said jason can you tell us what's going on can you give us an idea of what the market is? nobody has called us nobody so do you think that they really if they're not doing any market research if they're not calling the experts in the space you think they're going to really be able to come down on somebody like and how could they come down on a company like ours that's a private company like i don't have to show you anything i have no obligation 
zero. So yeah. how are you going to say, now we're not cheating. And the reason why we get to work with so many schools is because we do it the right way, but they have no power over anything at this point. So what is the NCAA in five years? Uh, I don't know if it exists. That's wow. the truth. I don't, I, not in the way that it exists today. I mean, and if student athletes become employees, then maybe it exists for non-football, non-basketball athletes. But outside that, they will not govern revenue sports. So you founded uh, Student Athlete NIL. Take me through how you founded that, how you found yourself in this space. I know you're a former athlete. You've always, at least from what I can tell reading about you, worked in some space in sports. Kind of take me through your path to what you've become today in the NIL space. Yeah, so uh, we, um, Sunil is something that I've thought about for a long time. I've represented college coaches, basketball, football coaches for over 20 years. Um, and I kind of realized two years ago, two and a half years ago, as NIL was becoming more of a reality, that I was probably the best positioned person in the world to do what I'm doing today. And that was because I had a great understanding of the sports marketing ecosystem. I was an agent and am an agent for a long time had relationships with all the big agencies, had all the relationships with all the schools, relationships with the coaches. And I knew what was going to happen when the NIL started. I knew that these collectives were going to exist. And so I started this company and we focus on two things. One is helping brands through the name, image, and likeness space with campaigns. We hosted the inaugural NIL summit this past year at the College Football Hall of Fame. Um, and then we work now with over 20 schools to help run their collectives, Penn State, Rutgers, Oklahoma, Georgia Tech, Wake Forest, Notre Dame. Um, so we're sort of the leaders in the space. And, and who knows what it's going to look like two years from now, right? It's going to be very different. Uh, we're just trying to stay ahead of all of it. Is there a part of you as a former athlete? I know it's a business. Was there was a party that wanted to get into the space and start these collectives to protect the kid from being, uh, you know, kind of bamboozled in some ways because these are kids we're talking about particularly when they come out of high school is there a nature of that to it you mentioned doing it the right way like is there uh, as a former athlete do you kind of that's see correct that? i mean i want to help empower student athletes yeah and that means helping them provide maximize their opportunities and minimize the downside and there are a lot of very unethical people not not surprisingly when there's a lot of money there's a lot of sharks right and so I'm I'm very happy and glad and proud of the fact that we've been able to do it and do it the right way and that more and more schools are recognizing the work that we've been able to accomplish. You mentioned knowing collective is going to happen. One thing I was going to ask you was how predictable in your mind was how all this played out once July 1st, 2021 hit. Has anything surprised you? Uh, it has not. No, it has not. I mean, it's not. And again, you're talking to somebody that was ahead of it from day one. Um, but no, it was very predictable. And uh, how do we have this podcast, you know, July or January 1st of 2021, I would have been telling you all this and you would have been like, I don't believe you. It's impossible. But, you know, to the people that understood what was about to happen, you know, and that's, you know, in a new frontier, the people that are, um, you know, the visionaries are the ones that get to take advantage of it. So you mentioned like, the NCA or no one affiliated with it calling you to ask about market value and all that. Do compliance departments call you? Because my best friend and college roommate's a sports agent. I had him on the podcast when he first started out. He was doing some NIL stuff. And even when we got down into the nitty gritty of like the regulations back when this first started, he would kind of shrug his shoulders sometimes. And I've talked to compliance people that are like, eh, I think. 
like, do you, do you get that sense from schools that they still struggle to figure out kind of the rule book on this? Yes. All the time, which is why we get to talk to schools and explain to them. And they're all in various stages, right. Of, you know, I, I say, and I mean this as a joke, but you know, like compliance directors are sort of like in those stages of like, you know, denial, grief, acceptance, right. Like they're going through all those five stages. So, um, most of them are not in denial anymore. They're sort of in that grief stage. Where does this go in three, four years? This is kind of where you started, but what's the next, you mentioned you're on the forefront. You've mentioned a lot of different things about that are going to happen in the future. Where does this go? How do you see this playing out in the next half decade? Uh, I think in a half a decade, if not earlier, we will be at some sort of revenue share model and there will be some sort of semi-professional athlete at schools uh, NIL will still exist. Once the revenue share kicks in, it will be less of an issue. It will still be important and it'll still be prevalent. But the next stage is what is who survives this world of some athletes getting paid and some not. Because there will be some schools that are going to be like, hey, we're not doing this anymore. We're not playing in this model. Because it is largely unsustainable, right? You described it as a stopgap to revenue sharing. Do you think that was an NCAA-induced stopgap? Because there's a part of me that looks at the big picture that they kind of was like, I know they didn't have a choice, but it was like, you can't have any of our money, so just go make your own type of thing. Like, do you view it in that general sense at all? Uh, no, I don't think the NCAA controlled any of this, unfortunately. I think that would be giving them too much credit. So revenue sharing... Is I mean, that would be hard to do without a players union, right? Like you mentioned, the employee unionizing is not going to be easy. But if you do get to revenue sharing, there's going to have to be some sort of collective bargaining. Like, how do you think that plays out with college age kids? Um, I don't know. That's, that's a question for another podcast. Put it that way, right? We can talk about that for a while. Absolutely. Last thing I have for you, this is mostly just curious. Who do you think in terms of like, has there been a school that stuck out in terms of being on the cutting edge? You mentioned Florida being ground zero, but I imagine some of that was due to that legislation in that state. Has there been a school or schools that have stuck out to you that have been a lot more on the forefront and proactive versus reactive about this? Yeah, I think some of the best schools include USC, Southern Cal, um, you know, Penn State, where we work at, um, Florida, uh, University of Florida, Tennessee has been really good from that perspective. Ohio State, all the big schools, right? They've been able to get their stuff together much faster than a lot of the other ones. As a former athlete, do you put any stock in the locker room culture and how NIL stuff could affect it? Because that's the thing people talked about, but you don't really see that much in actual professional locker rooms. Do you think that's a thing in college locker rooms, the guy getting X versus another guy getting Y? Uh, I think it's, it plays a little bit more in college than professional because in college in professional, you know, what fair market value is, right? You know, that the NFL QB is going to get X, but nobody knows what it is in college. Right. And right now, because everything is so hush hush, there might be a guy that doesn't actually deserve to be getting paid more than the QB getting paid more than the QB because the coach or whoever offered him money that they shouldn't have. Right. If it was all based on fair market value, then nobody would care. But we know it's not based on fair market value. It's based on an arbitrary valuation. 
it seems like this is just brought to light the underbelly of college football. You were a former D1 athlete. How different do you think recruiting is now? Is this just mainstream? Is it really generally the same conversations? You're just not dropping it off? No, it's all about NIL now. My former coach, Coach Chiano at Rutgers, um, says that, uh, told me, name image likeness actually stands for now it's legal. And that's the reality (laughs) of it, right? That's what NIL is. And so... You know, what was and and the last thing I'll say is that look at the schools that were able to move quickly in NIL, Auburn, Alabama, Ole Miss, Texas A&M, all of the SEC schools who were doing NIL before it was NIL. They had a culture of bag money, of guys getting paid under the table. Um, It's not the schools in the Northeast that, you know, the Michigans and Penn States of the world They weren't in that space, and that's why it's taking them longer to catch up. So at the end of the day, it's not going to alter the balance of college football. The haves will always be the haves and vice versa in your mind. Yeah, I mean, that's what we see now, right? It's not like all of a sudden this random school has turned out to be like – it's not like Washington State is the king of NIL, right? Right. It's you know, Or Mississippi State, right? Like, could have told you that that was going to happen. I'll end with probably the most important question. Would you have demanded the bag had NIL been a thing back in your day? How would you have played it? Uh, I wish I could have demanded the bag. <laughs> I was not good enough to demand anything. So um, I, I would have been happy with like a free lunch, to be honest with you. So, Jason uh, Belzer, this was awesome, man. I really appreciate the time. I learned a whole hell of a lot in the 40 minutes. Um, be well, and uh, I'll definitely be keeping up, and you're definitely a great resource for all this. I really appreciate the time, man. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate you having me on. All right. That was Jason Belzer. Again, I uh, can't take, thank him enough for his time. That was a really awesome interview. I learned a ton during that. Hopefully you did as well. We'll be back at it later on the week. We're going to have Weldon Rodenberg on to, of course, recap the World Cup, but also some uh, Ole Miss recruiting stuff. His National Signing Day is on Wednesday. And uh, a couple other things in the works later in the week. But I uh, appreciate you listening to this podcast. As always, we'll have more for you coming in the coming days. And uh, stay safe out there in this frigid weather. Maybe you're not in frigid weather. Congrats to you if you're not. But anyway, have a great start to your week.